do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. We often hear we should eat less but better meat. Today's guest argues that is not true. We have a wide-ranging conversation with someone who has been in the food system for a while, starting as a lawyer, working with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., lobbying against the pollution of the meat industry, to becoming a rancher and writing a book, Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. So buckle up. If you're a vegan or a meat eater, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Today we have the great pleasure to have a rancher and writer who started her research as a lawyer, lobbying against the pollution from the meat industry, when she was also a committed vegetarian. She just released the updated second version of Defending Beef, the ecological and nutritional case for meat. Welcome, Nicolette Neyman. Good morning. Thank you. Actually, it's not morning for you, but it is for me. <laughs> Hello. And it probably won't be morning when people are listening. But if it's morning when you're listening, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time in your morning. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. But let's start with your story, which for sure you've told millions of times or many times. But how did you end up working on soil? What brought you to soil? Yes, it is an unusual path. I was from Michigan in the United States and I studied biology in college, and then I went to law school, and I was working as a lawyer, and then I began working for environmental groups. Actually, I heard a speech by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in Michigan, and I was inspired by his talk to begin trying to work for environmental groups, and I began working for a National Wildlife Federation, and then I actually started working directly for the group that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is in charge of, Waterkeeper, in New York. And he asked me to work specifically on the meat industry because a lot of what he was seeing around the world, and especially in the United States, was that the concentrated meat industry was causing a lot of pollution, but it was not really being addressed by any of the you know, state or federal government agencies and so this was a very widespread problem that no one was tackling. What was the reason it got unnoticed? It's a, an industry, it's a sector that people had not historically thought of as a large pollution problem. But then there's also this sort of political influence of the food industry and of the meat industry and the pharmaceutical industry and the chemical industry, all of the industries that are involved in modern industrial agriculture and so there was really no political will to address this. And in fact, of course, many elected officials and so forth had, had 
in the rural states had a lot of constituents that were either farming or very sympathetic towards farming. So the whole idea of trying to regulate farming was not very popular. So there was a very significant problem, but there was not any real effort to address it. So when I worked for Bobby Kennedy at at Waterkeeper, what I was doing was kind of creating a whole approach to trying to tackle the pollution from the concentrated meat industry. But very soon into the work, I realized that we were going to be accused of just sort of being against meat. And also, I didn't like the idea of just attacking something. I really wanted us to help to build something better. And so I urged that we should include in the work kind of the supporting and the promotion of the ideas of, at that time, you know, this was 20 years ago, so we weren't using the term regenerative agriculture, but, you know, sort of a better form of agriculture. So I began working pretty early on in my project there with farmers that were doing a really good job with caring for the animals and caring for the land. And I visited a lot of those farms and it was very inspiring. So on the one hand, I was touring large industrial concentrated operations of poultry and pork and, you know, all the sectors. And I was inside a lot of those places. I was also outside a lot of those places and I was flying over, over them in small airplanes to look at the pollution And on the other hand, I was visiting a lot of farms, really good farms that were doing a really good job. And the difference could not have been more dramatic. So during the course of that job, I met a lot of the farmers from one particular organization, which was called Nyman Ranch. And I also met the founder of that group, Bill Nyman. And after I left the waterkeeper job, I ended up marrying Bill Nyman. That's a long story. So I'll just, just compress it into saying I met him through the work and we ended up getting married. And I, so I moved from New York to California all during this time. I was a vegetarian. So it surprised some people that I married a rancher and a meat industry founder. He had founded this company, Nyman Ranch, which is a network of uh, about 700 farmers and ranchers in the United States. And all of them were prioritizing land stewardship and good animal husbandry, and they had created a set of very, very uh, high standards for animal welfare. And so, you know, they had a lot of respect and appreciation for the organization. But when I moved to the ranch, which is in California, north of San Francisco, I was still a lawyer and a vegetarian, and I just planned on working as an environmental lawyer here. But I sort of fell in love with the ranch, and I began working on a daily basis on the ranch. And then I did that for seven years, kind of almost full-time work on the ranch. During that time, I wrote my first book, which was called Righteous Pork Chop. And then I decided I needed to write a book that was specifically defending the importance of animals in agriculture, and that's the Defending Beef book. And I've just come out, as you mentioned, with a new version of that book, which is making the argument that animals are incredibly important in regenerative agriculture. And so we shouldn't be vilifying it. We should be focusing on improving the practices. And do you, I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but do you remember (laughs) the first time you visited, let's say one of these between brackets, obviously farmers or farms, was that a gradual process? I always like to dig a bit deeper into these moments that changed, like the speech you heard, obviously. Was it a gradual process? Was it the first visit? Do you still remember? For sure, you still remember the first time you visited, a, let's say, a CAFO operation. But do you also yes. remember the first time you visited, let's say, the opposite of that? Did that 
open your eyes? Did that shock you? Or was it more a process like after you visited a number of them, you thought, okay, this is not just an anomaly. There are more out there. Do you remember that first visit or was it a process? Well, it kind of both. I mean, I had, because I'd grown up in southwestern Michigan, which has a lot of really good farm country there, and I had been on quite a few farms as a child. So I didn't grow up on a farm, but I had been on farms fairly, fairly often. You recognize um, Yeah. So I didn't have a negative feeling about farming in general, but I, I was extremely troubled, you know, in my work as I learned about the industrialized method of raising animals for food. And in fact, the more I learned about that, the more it just reinforced my thinking, well, I'm so glad I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> and I, you know, my initial thought was kind of like, it's a good thing. You know, this is an argument in favor of vegetarianism, you know, so I'd say that's where the big shift happened over the last couple decades in my thinking. But the probably the first farm that I really spent time on in the Nyman Ranch Network was Paul Willis's farm in Iowa. And he, together with my husband, Bill Nyman, founded the network of pig farmers that make up the Nyman Ranch Company. And he has just a lovely part of Iowa and his animals, you know, you can't help but notice that they're enjoying their lives and you can't help but notice how much life there is on his farm and how much diversity, you know, how much insect life, how much wildlife. And it was really striking to me how beautiful the place was for the neighbors and for the community. And even right there in his area, they have a lot of the large concentrated pig operations. And so the contrast was so dramatic. I mean, these were these very industrial scale concentrated. Yeah, let's describe with, them a bit for anybody. Yeah. We, we talk about them sometimes on the podcast, but we don't really, I don't think we can really visualize it. So yeah. take us on so, a visual tour on an audio format. How, what would yeah. you imagine when you say concentrated animal? Yeah, so these are basically, they look like, I mean, you know, the form is a little different around the world, but the typical situation is a kind of a large metal windowless building that looks basically like a warehouse and could be an Amazon warehouse, but it's yeah, it, it could be. You can't. It's really interesting when you drive by them. I remember when I saw the first buildings of that type. It was in Missouri, actually. If you didn't know what it was, you might not know even that there were animals there. They're very lifeless places. They had you know big sort of chain link tall fences, almost like a prison around them, and there was no activity. There were no animals. There were no humans. It was an automated facility that people would stop by a couple times a day to check on things, but a very, you know, unhuman <laughs> kind of environment and very unnatural to my eye to be in the middle of a rural area. And so it's something you might drive by without even knowing what it was, other than the fact that there was a tremendous smell. You would often get a very strong odor of a kind of a, a rotting or sulfuric kind of smell. And that would tip you off. Also, they often had these, especially the pig operations, large open air ponds where the manure would be liquefied and dumped into. So, you know, you could figure out what it is, but if you were just driving by quickly, you might not even if notice there closed. was, yeah. yeah, your windows closed and drive by fast. You might not even notice what uh -huh. it was. So, but very conflicting with my ideal of a farm that I had grown up with in my mind. And then Paul Willis's farm was pretty much the ideal. It was a place where there were a lot of people there working. There were people out in the fields. There were animals out in the fields. There were many different. He actually has a little prairie restoration part of his farm that he's been working on for years to reestablish native Iowa prairie. And 
it's just beautiful. It doesn't smell bad there. There's all kinds of plant life there and wildflowers of all types. And you enjoy being there. You enjoy every minute that you're there. It's almost like a life reaffirming process, right? And you interact with the animals and they're they're having fun. I remember seeing groups of piglets running around like the way you'd see puppies running around together in groups and rolling and playing. Over the months that I, you know, the first few months when I was at Waterkeeper and I went to a lot of the industrial pork operations, I never saw anything like that. They don't do that. You know, the animals literally live in kind of joyless, you know, cells on hard surfaces. And it's just a, it couldn't be more different. So that was pretty much right at the beginning of my journey that I had that experience. So I would say pretty early on, I considered there to be a pretty big difference between you know, what I would call more traditional agriculture and then the modern industrial form of it. And let's use the argument that immediately gets thrown uh, usually in this space. Okay, but great, this idealist or ideal farm, but we've created the other ones to feed the world and to create as, as mm-hmm. much protein as possible. And it's more efficient and probably not effective, but let's use the word efficient here. What is your usual response? Let's say we're on a stage right now and we do Q&A and somebody asks that question, how do you respond to that how do we feed the world question. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Well, first of all, in the United States, it's important to note that over the 100 years between 1915 and 2015, there were actually about the same number of pigs on the landscape. So we actually didn't increase the numbers of pigs in the United States that much, only slightly. It's a very slight difference. It's something like 55 million versus 60 million. So just a small difference. The big difference was where they were living and how. So instead of being distributed widely and living in small groups around the country, they were living in certain geographies in extremely concentrated populations. And the other point that I think just needs to be emphasized is that whenever someone talks about the sort of the feeding world or the efficiency idea, they're really just looking at a very narrow lens And it doesn't consider any of the downstream effects, not just the ecological downstream effects, because they're quite significant and measurable for the industrialized situation. And there are tremendous benefits to the more traditional, what I would say, sort of the longer, the old, the tried and true method of raising animals, which has a lot of ecological benefits that are very important to compare, but also just even the quality of the food that's produced and the safety So there's a pretty dramatic difference in terms of all those externalized costs or benefits that aren't there or there are there, depending on the method, and also the quality of the food and how nourishing that is. It's quite different. That second piece of it hasn't been as much part of the conversation in in my experience, but I think it's beginning to be talked about. So we're not producing the same thing. It's a very different process. And if you are doing animal husbandry well, in you know what I would call an ecologically sound manner and in a way that gives animals good lives and is really thinking holistically about 
a farm more as an ecosystem. If you do it well, the animals are not only not bad, they're essential. They're an incredibly important part of a regenerative system. If you are doing it in the industrialized method, it's more like a mining process. You're extracting, you're trying to take something and take it away. And you're not thinking about the farm as an ecosystem that needs to be regenerating itself at all. And in fact, it is something that depletes the soil and will pollute the water and reduce the topsoil and everything else. So it's not over the longer term, it's much less ecologically sound. And the not just the safety of the food and the healthfulness of it, but also the eating quality is dramatically diminished. So these are things that are beginning to be part of the conversation, but we're not at that time. Yeah, I think it's a link it below. Then the Bio-Nutrient Food Association is launching mm-hmm. or launched a big study on beef at the moment globally, the differences right. between all the different versions of grass fat and grass finish, the different countries, et cetera. So we'll link it below if anybody's interested in that. And I Good. think it for sure, it shows already because it's based on some very strong research, the difference in couldn't be more in terms of how animals are raised, but it does raise the, the central, I know a few investors that for sure, if they're listening now, they will, they will like to ask that question. Like, is it necessary to have animals in, maybe it even depends on the ecosystem, but in an ecosystem, is it necessary to have that? Because we see some farmers now as well, I think they're called themselves the vegan farming movement that are getting their <laughs> fertilization from somewhere else. It's always very unclear where, but is it necessary to have the animals in the system as part of the system, even quote unquote, as a tool? And maybe we, we have to decide if we want to eat them or not. That's a separate, this could be a separate discussion, but as a tool in, in ecosystem restoration and regeneration from your experience, obviously bias. But from your experience, is it a crucial tool in that regeneration process that so many landscapes need to go through as we've mined most of them? Yeah, well, I think absolutely. And the reason we know that is because if you look at nature and you think of nature as our guiding principle and how it all works and how everything is interconnected and not just, you know, we think about the larger animals on the landscape that we see, but probably even more importantly, is what's happening in the soils and and throughout the ecosystem, but on the microscopic level. And I think the research is fairly new in this arena, but there's more and more research showing that the whole microscopic process that happens in soils that leads to regeneration and leads to not just more carbon in the soil, which is an important biomarker of health of the system, but you know, how much diversity of microorganism is there? How much activity is happening in the soil and micro on the life. microscopic level? Yeah. That Right, how much life is happening? And all of that has been shown to be benefited by the presence of animals. So I think it kind of boils down to the common sense idea that if you want to farm as nature, you know, to have your farm function the way nature does, which is truly fully regenerative, if that's your guiding principle, then you need animals because there is no ecosystem on earth that doesn't have animals. And I don't know if that research has been done. I think it's very tricky. What is like in an ideal situation and obviously looking at land, we should dive much deeper into the ocean literally as well, but let's leave that out for now. What's the carrying capacity in a sense that could we eat the current quantity of animal protein we're eating, which mostly comes in most places from the wrong side of history, let's say the CAFO operations, if they would fully switch in this transition, which is going to be messy, et cetera, would we be able to support the same quantity or is there a reduction 
at least let's say in the global north of animal protein needed there as well. Like, have you any grasp of the numbers? I mean, you mentioned the pig ones, obviously, but is there, has there been research done to that? Like in terms of the quantity we could produce in a regenerative way or using regenerative practices or while restoring ecosystems? There've been, a t- obviously, it's incredibly important to note that all of those kinds of global analyses are not very credible because even I, you know, I point this out all the time, but it's something I really didn't understand until I moved here. I mean, I moved to our ranch from New York City, so I was really living in a very urbanized setting, and I grew up in a suburban part of Michigan, as I mentioned. So I didn't grow up, you know, living on the land every day in the way I do now, and I did not really understand this until I lived here. But it is truly the case that everything is so specific in terms of what you're talking about in terms of the land's capacity to produce something and also how it will best function. So within our own ranch, I see dramatic differences in the different parts of the ranch. And there are dramatic differences for us compared to people down the road from us. I mean, so it is so specific. So when every time I hear these global figures, they all have to be taken with a huge grain of salt. Okay. But that being said, there has been an effort. There have been attempts, and I've discussed it in some of the in my books. There have been attempts to quantify how much meat you could produce, how much animal-based foods you could produce. And basically, the bottom line is that the number is not really a limiting factor. I mean, I know, like I personally thought, and I, you know, probably believe this until the last few years, even, that we would probably have to move towards lower consumption of animal-based foods, especially, as you said, in the global north, you know, in sort of the industrialized world. And then there's probably, there is, in fact, definitely a need for more animal-based foods in the developing world from a nutrition and health standpoint. So I sort of bought that argument. I really don't believe that anymore because the more I've studied this issue, the more I've thought about it, I've realized that the how is everything. It's not about the numbers. It's about how you are managing the animals and how you are managing the whole farm as an ecosystem. And Gabe Brown in North Dakota says so well, I think the more animals he added, the more life he saw on his ranch, the more carbon he saw in his soils, the more diversity he saw throughout the system, the more nutrients that were found in the food that he was growing. So in his book, you know, Dirt to Soil is something I think everybody should read. (laughs) It's just a tremendous book, but he kind of, yeah, he just describes it so well, how animals didn't take away from the ecosystem they added. And so I think when we have these conversations where we always talk about eat less meat and eat better meat, and and I said those things myself, you know, 10 years ago, but I no longer believe it because what I've seen myself with my own eyes, as well as the research I've seen, is that if we are managing things from this holistic perspective and thinking about regeneration as the goal, animals are extremely valuable. So I don't actually find it compelling at all to believe that we need to reduce our animal-based food consumption. But that being said, consumers can support the development of these kinds of systems and the growth of these kinds of systems by what kinds of foods they purchase. So to the extent that people can afford to, you know, it's very important to purchase foods from a good source. And I mean, that affordability is is another argument that usually gets thrown immediately. Like, yeah, that's right. easy to say if you live in New York City and you're, let's say you're, you can live in New York City, which means you need a certain standard of living. 
you can buy these things or you can visit the farmer's market or you can order these boxes now online, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The price is always very different compared to the cave operation stuff you find in the supermarket. It's a very long discussion. Do you have, I wouldn't say an easy answer. What is, what is your standard <laughs> answer there when somebody throws that out? Let's say, imagine we're again, we're in, in the theater on stage and, and somebody in the Q&A throws that question onto the stage. What is your normal reaction there? I mean, I have a few, but I'm yeah, really well, about I think. Yours. Yeah, the affordability issue is a real issue, but it's kind of a red herring as, you know, in terms of uh, whether we need to move towards regenerative agriculture, because first of all, the grocery store price does not really consider all of the costs and all of the benefits of food production. So we need to, as a society, think about the larger picture when we're discussing this. And, you know, I mean, in the United States, for example, in 1950, people spent about 30% of their income on food. And now today we spend about 9%. So one thing that's happened is Americans have just dropped their values as far as how much we think we should be paying for food and how much it's worth. And I love, you know, Michael Pollan's idea that you pay your farmer now or you pay your doctor later. It's a long-term investment. Now, there are people that genuinely can... So, one thing is a lot of like middle class and upper class Americans just don't like paying more for food. It's not really about whether they can afford it or not. Okay. And that's a big point. I know people How do we that get are them on board. Taste. Well, uh, yeah, I think the, I think I mean, that's, that's a big that's part what of it. Barbara would say, but yeah. Yeah, I think flavor is really important. I think it gets underestimated in terms of its importance in a lot of these conversations, but I think it is really important and just getting people more thinking in terms of that bigger picture and what the impact of their purchases are having on all of these systems and then their own health long-term. But it's a couple other points about the affordability. One is that, you know, this expectation that we expect, what we expect to pay. And I think we do need to shift our expectations about the value of food to our lives, to our daily enjoyment and to our long-term health. The other is that, you know, my husband, Bill Nyman is really good about talking about this. There's a whole animal and every part of the animal you know, has a different use. And when we know how to cook and we know how to prepare food, and especially meat is one of these foods, Mm -hmm. there are very low cost parts of every animal. And those cuts are not only equally, and even in some cases more nutritious than the kind of standard roast. They're much tastier. Exactly. So, you know, I've actually, as I returned to meat eating in the last couple of years, I, for the first time, really started working on learning how to braise meat, for example, and just, you know, that long, slow, low temperature cooking. And it's actually my favorite kind of meat. And so a lot of what I eat and prepare for our own family is some of the cheapest cuts (laughs) because they're delicious. They're very nutritious. They're very nourishing and satiating and satisfying. And my mother was very thrifty and she used to use a lot of that kind of meat. So it actually reminds me a lot of my own childhood. But I think there's a lot to say about affordability. And I think the most important thing is just to recognize it should not be a barrier trying to create regenerative agriculture because there's always a cost and there's always, um, you know, things have to change in order for things to improve. And I think what we're paying for food right now is not a reflection of its true cost. So we really need to, from a societal perspective, put more value on food that's well-produced and then try to make that become the norm. And costs, of course, will come down over time as, you know, if systems move in that direction. Yeah, I think there's some interesting points there. I will link below. There's a Rockefeller study that came out this year. We're t- still 2021. Let's see when this interview will be out. But 
that estimated the cost of the food system in the U.S. to about three times what the Americans combined pay for their food. Mm. And it's based on research and uh, a framework of uh, True Cost Accounting and the True Price Foundation that we just interviewed as well, which should be out whenever you're listening to this uh, with Pietro. And I will put that link below as well. And they show the true price in things, in coffee, in many commodities. And the difference is definitely there, but not crazy. And there are even some shops now experimenting with that. There's a bar that's open, a a coffee place that's open in Amsterdam. It's a supermarket where you pay the full price, like mandatory, like that (laughs) that all the prices are added to it. And they then, of course, it's not a perfect system. They donate to compensate for CO2 and for social costs, et cetera. But at least it makes it very visible on your receipt. Like this is the price you would have paid for these bananas. And this is the cost we added because it's the true cost. And so there's that playing with showing the difference. And then in some places you get the option to pay for it if you want extra. In some places, actually mandatory. And of course, that raises discussion, like should the government make that mandatory? Should sit? I mean, there's a lot of interesting work there on true pricing and true cost accounting and showing a lot of these things, which to the farm level, probably a lot of the research isn't there yet. But in general, a lot of these things we know. We know we can do a good estimate, let's say, of all the extra costs that should be counted. And down to a cup of coffee, it's not that much. If you calculate it for the whole coffee industry, it's a lot, obviously. So it's a very interesting movement, which I will link a few things below. Yeah. And the Sustainable Food Trust has been doing a lot of work in that space. And I I was very involved in the conference. They did it here in San Francisco called the True Cost of American Food. And that was kind of showcasing that whole idea. So I think that's a great lens with which to think about this issue. Yeah, and it shows the gap and makes it very visible. And to shift gears a bit, why did you decide to update the book? Because I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the book was published 20 years ago. Why was it in need of a of a second edition with quite a bit of extra and deeper thoughts, et cetera? Yeah, it's just because this issue is so topical and there's been so much new research. You know, everything from the health side in terms of how our body metabolizes meat and new thinking about a lot of the existing research on health and nutrition. And then on the ecological side, there's been a ton of new work related to soil carbon and other things related to methane and climate change. And just throughout the book, I felt it needed more new research because it was happening. And it's just such a topical area. And quite honestly, the publisher, they asked me to do it. And I told them I could do it in a few months And then I began working on it and I realized, no, I actually, my own thinking has evolved a lot and the public conversation has evolved a lot. And as I read the book line by line, there was quite a bit I wanted to change throughout the book. So it took me about a year to do, and I'm very happy to have had this opportunity because it really reflects my current thinking and I think the current situation. And there's so much conversation about meat right now, and especially with respect to climate change. And I think about 90% of it is not really getting a very deep grasp of the issue at all. So I was super happy to have the opportunity to kind of infuse my book into the public conversation that's happening right now. Yeah. And a shout out to Chelsea Green, who reached out to have this conversation and made this possible and have, has a lot of other interesting books. I think they published oh, they're Dirt terrific. to Soil as well, right? Dirt to yes, soil exactly. And, 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 and in fact, I actually went to them when I first wrote the book. It was the only publisher I approached. And I said, I have this idea. I want to write this book. And they immediately said, yes, (laughs) because I knew that was the right home for the book. They do wonderful books about sustainability and this whole idea that everything is connected and that we need to think holistically in terms of everything we do. And that's exactly what I believe. So it's, it's great to have 
your book in a place where the publisher believes in your book and understands it. <laughs> Just to be clear, they didn't sponsor this conversation, but it's, uh, <laughs> no. they, made it, they made it possible by connecting us too. So that's uh, very much appreciated. But we had Judith D. Swartz, uh, who published oh, she's them great. as well yes. a few times and is a good friend of the show. So we're close. To shift the conversation to, let's say, the investing or the financing or the money side of things, imagine still we're on stage, we're doing this live, hopefully that's soon possible to do these things live again. And we're in a room, let's say we're doing it in New York City, so full of smart impact investors, smart investors that are looking for a financial return, a fair financial return, but definitely an ecological and a societal return. And of course, without giving them investment advice, because that's not what we do on this podcast, but just for educational purposes only, where would you point them in your experience as a writer, as a lawyer, and of course, as a rancher as well? What would be places where they, if you would tell them, okay, when you leave this room after tonight, and so tomorrow morning, you should definitely take a car or a plane or whatever, and go and dig deeper into these and these areas. What are the most exciting places for you where you would point people with, let's say, a financial background, a financial brain? Well, there's a lot of interest in supporting soil carbon. So there's, um, in California here, for example, we have state legislation that is incentivizing farmers to begin measuring how much carbon they have in their soils and how they can increase that. And there's a lot of interest in the investment community in, in ways to support programs that are doing that. And I think that's an intriguing idea, and I have nothing against that. But I I'm... In, yes, here's the but. Okay. So the but is... Carbon is just kind of a biomarker for soil health, for life and how healthy an ecosystem is. It's really not the end goal. So what I'm interested in, and I actually don't have a specific place to point people for this, but I'm interested in systems or kind of metrics that will actually measure ecological health in agricultural operations. So it would look, for example, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, who's a, I don't know if you've had him on your podcast, but he's, he's, okay, so yeah, exactly, fascinating person. And he's done these wonderful talks about how whenever we talk about insects and we're just thinking of one particular insect and this is a pest and we have to attack this particular insect, you know, and the same thing could be said of plants, you know, weeds, quote unquote, weeds, plants that are undesirable in a particular location, so we call them weeds. Whenever we have too much of something, he makes this point really well, it just is a system that's out of balance. And so he urges that we don't just attack any given undesirable living thing, whether it's an insect or a plant, but that we think about system health. And it's all about balance and it's all about diversity. And so what I'm interested in is how do we support agricultural systems, whether we're policymakers or consumers or investors, how do we support agricultural systems that are really trying to create that diversity in agriculture that will create balance using nature's wisdom and using nature's systems to balance everything out? So, for example, if you have an insect that's present in your agricultural system, you would normally always have other animals and other entities that will reduce the population of that insect. And, you know, you could just think, I mean, we think about it all the time with deer, you know, their deer are massively overpopulated in certain parts of the United States because they've lost all of their natural predators. And in many cases, hunting is not really allowed or is restricted. So you just see it very much on the landscape, but it's true on the microscopic level and on the, you know, small scale of insects and the plant life as well. When you have a system that's in balance, it's very diverse. 
we actually, we have a kind of a living example is right here, right now. We've had um, tremendous increase in the presence of gophers on our ranch. And we have, there's, you know, gopher problem throughout the Western part of the United States. And it's What's largely a gopher for anybody that lives in the city, sort of ground dwelling rodents. <laughs> okay. And they're really problematic for, they you know, the, yeah, yeah, they really destroy a lot of ground because they are, are down in the root system. And they, you know, so what you need to have a healthy pasture or rangeland is you have to have a lot of underground activity among, you know, the soil and the, the roots and everything else of the plants. And so when you have too many gophers, it's really a problem. But what we've realized, we don't use any poisons or anything at all in our ranch. And we just sort of watched and waited. And we found that the number of raptors, we have a lot of predatory birds here, massive numbers, but it went up pretty dramatically when we started to see the increase in the gopher population. So, you know, nature does this, it balances itself out. And we fully expect our gopher problem to be pretty much remedied, you know, within the next couple of years by this tremendous population of herons and egrets and hawks and falcons and kestrels. Everything that's here is always here, but now it's more. For example, we have great horned owls here. We have lots of them on our ranch. But usually we'll see a little a clutch of the owls, you know, being born. And then you'll see the fledglings coming. You'll see the mother teaching them how to hunt. And then they'll kind of distribute, you know, they'll kind of disperse. So you'll just see one or two of them remaining on the ranch. This year, the entire family of great horned owls that was born has stayed here. And I'm convinced it's because of the increase in the gopher population. Right. There's just a wonderful buffet happening out there for them right now. So this is how nature works. It always kind of balances itself out over time. And I think that the key to truly creating a regenerative food system is for us all to understand and to learn about how nature works and balances itself out and to focus on that bigger picture in creating food systems. So as we mentioned earlier, there was kind of an extractive mindset with industrialized agriculture where everything was all just about you have inputs, which you measure, and then you have outputs, which you measure, and you don't consider any of the downstream effects or any of the things that happen in between. And the regenerative mindset is totally different. It's thinking about how everything's connected and how everything is related and affects it, each other, and trying to figure out how to make things balanced and how does the system work to the best and supporting that rather than coming up with sort of silver bullet solutions to every Let's new measure problem. Carbon. And I'm thinking of, I don't know who said it for sure, a farmer, like the best way to measure or to see if a landscape is or a farm is moving forward or is, let's say getting starting to regenerate faster etc is to follow the predator behavior of the predators on a farm mm. because they can vote with their feet or with their wings they can move <laughs> and because you're basically saying how do we measure the increase of life on a farm which for sure we can come up with many different metrics and proxies and biodiversity metrics on the soil in the soil on top of it etc etc but also maybe even the simple, the predator, the quantity and the quality and the diversity of the predators on a farm is maybe the easiest to measure because you can see them. But maybe it's a proxy for the overall life in the ecosystem. Or maybe there are some other proxies because at the end of the day, we need something relatively easy to measure, but also something that is a good measurement stick or a good proxy for the life on the farm. And potentially carbon, soil carbon isn't the best way to do that. I mean, it now gets a lot of hype and a lot of money is thrown yeah. at it and potentially we get paid for it, et cetera, et cetera. But 
it's not the best. It's a biomarker, like you said, not an end goal. And maybe life on the farm is an end goal or could be an end goal. But then we have to define what the end goal is. So, But I think well, and, and, could be very interesting in this case. Like if we would have measured, probably you're doing that, like the quantity of predator birds and the number of species, you can see that uptick over the last years and showing that there is something is happening on the farm or something interesting is happening. Well, and there's also the whole question of the food. So you mentioned earlier the research about how much nutrition, how many nutrients of all different types are contained in the food. And that's a really important part of this as well that isn't talked about as much, but there are real impacts, not just the sort of ecological health of the system, but of the nutritive value of the food that is produced. So that's another way to measure the health of a system, how much nutrition is contained and not just you know, the ones we typically measure, system. Yeah. but yeah. it's a much more complex measurement because you're not just looking at things like vitamin E or yeah. calcium or whatever, but you're going to try to look at like Dr. Fred Provenza urges, you know, all the secondary compounds and basically how biologically vibrant the food is, which is, you know, I think the big difference between sort of modern industrial food, which is basically biologically dead and food that's produced in a regenerative system and consumed close to the source. Definitely, I will link Fred below as well. But we had Dan Kittredge multiple times. Uh-huh. Fascinating to follow the work of the Biotech mm-hmm. Food Association. Joe Clepperton, who works a lot with Dan Barber. And there is emerging research, let's say. We always knew what you are, what you eat, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it always helps when we can, can actually show it. Um, yeah. uh, in peer-reviewed papers, et cetera. And it's very interesting, the huge variety they find in the quantities of, uh, first of all, we have to figure out what are the nutrients we actually want to follow. Probably yeah. there are a lot more than we currently measure. And we get a right. whole debate about what we should measure and we don't capture the complexity, et cetera. Uh, right. But yeah, the, the aliveness of the food is something which is very, very interesting in a time where we're going through health crisis after health crisis. And so it's something that I see with the podcast and with all the interviews we've done is probably one of the most promising, let's say, places to dig deeper. And yeah. So if I'm on this stage with you, and I would definitely urge everybody to dive deeper into that, because this the whole food as medicine discussion is extremely interesting, extremely filled with noise, but there's also, there's a lot of very fundamental research being done on farms right now as we speak. And that is going to hit us quite quite hard, I think, over the next year. So that's a good point as well. And what if you would be an investor? Let's say you're in charge of a, a large investment portfolio. Let's say a, a billion. I used to say a billion was a lot, but then this time it's not so much anymore. <laughs> but let's say a lot of money. So a billion dollars and you are free. It could be very long-term investments, could be anything, basically. What would you focus on? What would you prioritize in terms of places to put money to work? Well, one thing... I mean, this whole concept we've just been talking about, about creating farms that are more like ecosystems, I'm not sure exactly what the vector would be to get to that, but that would be an area I would be looking at. Another thing is just creating more regional food systems, making sure that every region has the ability to produce and consume the food and get it to the consumer. So one of the areas in the United States that we're really lacking in is slaughter and processing capacity for animals. So I would really Which look completely at this. collapsed in the COVID pandemic, right? Yeah. And or there, at least and the there, industrial side of things. Well, there's, yes, that's right. Because the work environments were, you know, not safe places. Almost as and, bad as and, in the and, facilities itself. Yeah. Yeah. So they were, a lot of them had to shut down for extended periods of time. And, and interestingly, a lot of the smaller facilities that were more locally connected and where the, 
employees were more invested directly. A lot of them are employee-owned, et cetera, in the smaller regional places. Many of them didn't did not ever have to shut down. I know a lot of the Nyman Ranch farmers that I spoke with uh, were not affected by the COVID. They did really shutdowns. well, actually. They were yeah. sold out until 2023. Yeah. Exactly. So it was a really different scenario. But that physical infrastructure for the sort of the slaughter and the it's processing of it's lacking now because the larger slaughter companies purchased a lot of the local slaughterhouses and shut them down. And we need these. We need regional facilities so that the smaller independent farmers and ranchers can get their animals to consumers. And so that's an that little, you know, there's a big bottleneck in the slaughter and processing infrastructure. So that's something I would definitely look at if I were how, how in charge of money. local is, does it need to be in terms of uh, what's the research around quality? Like how, it's a very difficult question, but how far does, because a lot of these animals currently have to travel very far in very stressful yeah. situations, which I can't imagine helps with the quality of the end protein. How local does local need to be? Does everything need to be slaughtered in a in an perfect world on the farm itself? Or uh, like is half an hour okay? Well, what is your experience there in terms of when do you start to really lose quality because of the distance and the freshness, basically, and the stress? And, and the Yeah, well, those are all, ex exactly, those are the considerations you're looking at. How far do you need to transport the animal? How fresh will it be, et cetera? And there's a real animal welfare concern when you're transporting animals. So it really depends on the species. But I would say, in general, I'm not that interested in local food systems, but I'm interested in regional food systems. So I think, I mean, the United States, of course, is a really big country and we drive long distances to do everything <laughs> and we think nothing of it. But I would say, ideally, you wouldn't want to transport your animals more than a couple of hours drive away. That would be kind of the outer limit. And so we need to sort of look, you know, I just think of regional food sheds and think, do we have what we need in this area for? And of course, what is being raised on the land is quite different depending on where you are. And I don't think there's anything wrong with transporting meat. You know, meat is a incredibly nutrient rich food that is very beneficial to human health. And so it's worth it to transport things. I mean, I, I get a little freaked out when I hear that we're flying raspberries places and things like that. I mean, I, I think there's tremendous inefficiency in terms of the transport of food, but meat is one of those foods or fish, all of the sort of animal proteins. These are things that are worth transporting because of how much nourishment they provide to people. And so I think when we're thinking about regional food sheds, we want to make sure that we can process the animals that are located in that region and then, you know, for example, you look at New York City, obviously you're going to have to bring meat in from farther away, but it's worth doing that. It's maybe not worth flying greens across the country in the middle of the winter. That's a very interesting point you're making in terms of, I think we, the food miles shouldn't be only food miles, but also almost nutritional miles. Like what are mm -hmm. transporting per kilo or per ton? And in many cases of fruits and vegetables, it's mostly water and sugar. And so is that worth it or are we allowed to transport and burn a lot of CO2 and other emissions in that process? And so where is that limit or where where's the sweet spot? And yeah, obviously the more nutrition dense per kilo or per gram you are, 
the more you should be allowed to travel and still limited as much as possible. But yeah, the processing, and probably that's the same with actually with many other things, the processing should be as quick and as local as possible to keep a lot of these things in. But then the transport yeah, depends on the form and shape, et cetera. Well, because at the end, we're mostly transporting water, which is which is a bit of a waste of energy. Yeah, and there's just that whole question of how you measure, you know, sort of the ecological impact of different foods. Dr. Michael Lee in the UK has made the argument that, and I think it's really sensible, that when you're thinking about the sort of the climate change impact of different foods, you need to consider how much nourishment that food provides and think about it in terms of that, how much emission versus how much nourishment. And so when you do that, his research is really interesting to me because it shows that uh, beef in particular is very beneficial to transport because it actually provides a great deal of nutrient value, nutrition to people. And when you look at the climate change impact in that lens, beef is quite low. It's really interesting. It's a conversation I think is, again, we need to dig, not we, (laughs) but society needs to be having more conversations about that. Yeah, that's super interesting. That definitely, I'll try to find it and link it below and otherwise I'll get back to you. On Michael, Michael Lee, you said, right, in the UK. Yeah. I think I've seen some of those graphs, but I need to link them below just to... He's done to some them, talks. Yeah. He's done some talks where he shows some, some good graphics. And I've met him as well when I was speaking for Sustainable Food Trust in the UK in 2019. So I've heard him speak in person and met him, and I've seen a couple of his talks online. So there's, he's got some good stuff out there. Great. And this is a question I definitely, I wouldn't say stole, but borrowed from John Kemp, who always asked it in, in his podcast slightly differently, but... Where are you contrarian? I mean, we've heard a few things. Maybe it's the not reduction of meat part. Maybe it's something else. Mm -hmm. Where are you, when you go to these conferences, where do you think very differently? Where are you contrarian uh, towards your peers, towards the other regenerative Mm -hmm. ag, regenerative ranching, et cetera, people? Where do you feel like, oh, actually there, I'm quite contrarian here. Well, I guess a couple of ways. One is, yes, definitely this question of whether we should be reinforcing this idea that we need to eat less meat. That's something that I hear, and I as I said, I've said it myself in the past, I no longer believe that because I see this tremendous power of well-managed animals to regenerate landscapes and to regenerate soils and ecosystems. So I no longer agree with that message at all. And another part of, this is not exactly contrarian, but it's quite different. I've often seen, I've been to a lot of agricultural conferences and ecological conferences over the years, and I'm always shocked how little people are talking about the food, not just the nutritional value, but the eating quality, the enjoyment. Sometimes and, places, Right. <laughs> yes. That's a whole nother problem. It's often the, you know, sort of basically just industrial food that you'll get at these conferences, which is very ironic, but because it's the cheapest. You know, so just like everybody else. And you're in a conference setting and and you might have a few stands of a few companies where you can snack something better, interestingly enough, but you're right. It's very little about the food. But I think we need to have the food and how much importance it has for us as humans to be eating food that is enjoyable and that we sit around a table eating together. I mean, food is so much more than just the output of an agricultural system, you know. Food is has this tremendous cultural importance. And in fact, I just saw recently, somebody posted on Facebook, well, meat is just a, eating meat is a cultural thing. And I thought to myself, well, first of all, it's not true. But second of all, even if it were, 
why does that make it unimportant? <laughs> Culture is everything, right? That's supposedly what distinguishes us from the rest of the living creatures on the planet. We have culture, right? We have a long history of knowing who we are and passing down traditions and stories and things. And that's what culture is. And food is an incredibly important part of culture. So I think the idea that food is nourishing to our culture and to our bodies and to our souls that's a really important part of the conversation that I almost never see when I go to a conference. And if you could change one thing overnight, like you have a magic wand and you, you can change one, one thing in the food, agriculture, or in general, uh, honestly, it could be anything. What would you change? Well, having been inside a lot of these industrial animal operations, they are places that, you know, if you have any kind of concern about animals, you cannot consider them morally acceptable. So to me, having been in a lot of these places and seen how, you know, just terrible they are, I would immediately, if I could do one thing, I would get the animals back outside, get them out of their cages, get them off of the hard floors, let the animals be able to walk around, breathe fresh air, be in the sunshine. That would be the single biggest sweeping change I would want to see overnight in the food system. And I believe over time, we are going to get there because the more people have seen what these places look like, the more people understand how wrong they are. And it's a tricky one. But what would you then, let's say we're again on stage and somebody, you were a committed vegetarian. What would you say to the vegetarian movement or even the vegan movement as well? That often we, I see it in, in a lot of online conversations and in general as well. It, it often, let's say the regenerative ranchers, especially the people that use animals, use between brackets, use animals in regenerating soils. Somehow we get into a lot of discussions or we, I'm not doing, I, I'm not having animals, but we as a movement get into a lot of discussions with the vegan side of things, with vegetarians. And personally, I think it's just a distraction from the real issue, which is industrial, industrial scale extractive agriculture. And I think for them, it's perfect that we're getting a lot of dis discussions because it's just delay, delay, delay. But what do you feel when that mm -hmm. happens? When because something, let's say somebody very passionate stands up in the audience and say, we should just stop eating meat or stop stop killing animals for food. What do you tell, except that they should read the book and they should do a lot more research, et cetera, et cetera. What is your general response when you get a, a question like that or a statement? Usually it's not a question. Well, I do. I actually have encountered that many times. So I think the bottom line is that every form of food production causes the loss of life. And if you're just thinking that killing an animal for food is killing, and if you're eating, not eating animals, that you're not engaging in killing, then you're not really looking at agriculture and understanding how agriculture works. So, you know, I had this kind of revelation to myself years ago when I was working in my garden, and I was just sort of clearing away the growth that had come in over the winter. Because it's in California, we don't have everything die off during the winter. Like where I'm from in Michigan, everything just dies in your garden and then you start afresh. But here we have to pull everything out. And as I was doing that, I saw all these tiny little webs and nests. And it was a whole little microscopic kind of ecosystem, not quite microscopic, but a small scale ecosystem that I was just destroying by getting the garden ready just to plant vegetables in it, right? So it was a completely vegan place, but I was causing yard. just yeah. mayhem, right? Death and destruction. It was like I was the force of the apocalypse coming to this little piece of land that I was going to put my seeds into. 
And it was one, and actually that moment has affected the way I guarded too. I've changed, you know, I've thought a lot about this over the years and I've really moved away from the classic sort of clearing your ground and putting the seeds in in the spring. I don't do that anymore. But in any event, every type of food causes death and causes ecological impact and harm. And if you're just not seeing it because you're not seeing the plowing of the ground, you destroying the, the snake and habitat and killing the mice and killing all of the other animals that live in the ground, and you're not paying attention or you're ignoring the fact that rodents and deer and everything are being killed to prevent them from eating your vegetable or fruit crop. You know, you can do that if you want, but the reality is there is a killing that's going to happen for your food. And so to me, it's just ignoring that if you're saying you're quote unquote eating compassionately because you're not eating meat. So the bigger question I think is, are we getting our food from systems that are more like ecosystems? And those are supporting life of all types, whether it's animal or vegetable or fungal. And I think that should be the focus and this idea of, are, are you, do you have meat or no meat on your plate? is almost irrelevant in terms of whether or not you're being humane in terms of how you eat. Yeah, I think you could almost argue, I'm not sure if I'm getting emails about this, but that <laughs> by if let's say you're consuming a lot of industrial grown grains and a lot of industrial grown or extractively grown, but still on the label it says vegan, like you could almost argue that you're causing more harm, depending how you calculate the amount of lives, of course. Let's say a cow is very different from a, a mice, but you do cause so much harm with that. And we, I mean, we haven't done that calculation, but you could, like the quantity is almost more than if you would eat directly meat. Like it's a, it's an indirect cause, but yeah, you can close your eyes for that, but there's an enormous destruction going on to produce all of that, plus the, all the fertilizer and, and plus all the stuff that has to be produced to produce that, that vegetable. Yeah. And there have been some... There have been some articles that have argued that very point with with some real credible research mm -hmm. in them. But I think it's, you know, it's impossible to precisely quantify again because everything Depends is so different. Exactly. So it's just I think it's just the general idea that people have to accept. Agriculture is going to have an impact. And the key point is is the system that you're getting your food from and your different foods. I mean, most of us probably get it from a lot of different sources. I know I do. But are all those places where you're buying your food from, are they trying and focusing on this whole idea of soil health and ecological health? And are they making the process one that is compatible with the natural landscape function that's supposed to be in that place where the food is coming from? And that conversation is almost never happening in the vegan setting. In fact, I have never seen it. Yeah. Let's invite them here. I mean, we had one... <laughs> Very interesting, uh, I will link it below as well, a vegan cheesemaker in Amsterdam who they did an LCA on their cashew nut cheese and found out that it was definitely better than industrial cheese, extractive cheese, but it wasn't as good as they hoped. And so they were switching ingredients to beans that are mm. grown in the Netherlands instead of cashew mm. nuts that come from far, mm. that use a lot of natural gas or this fossil gas to be cleaned and processed, etc. And they were quite shocked on the LCA and they were saying we're probably one of the few, unfortunately in Europe, of the alternative cheesemakers that actually looked at their ingredients and did yeah. some analysis of where they come from, what impact they had. And the, let's say the potential positive side of things was way lower than they would have hoped as a very ambitious vegan startup. 
and they are changing their whole recipe, which is an interesting journey in working with dairy farmers to plant these type of beans and to actually oh, start rotation yeah. in them. And so there's an interesting discussion there on, there's a fundamental discussion there on ingredients. So I will link that, that interview below. But thank you so much, Nicoletta, for your time this morning, this morning where you are, and for your journey. And of course, sharing what you've learned over the last years and why you did an updated version, a very thoroughly updated version, as it sounds, from the book you published before. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.